You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. My thing is helping people understand how our brains work so that we can be better and do better in any area of life that's important to us. So as well as bite-sized brain science, I'll be bringing you interviews and advice from experts and guests who specialize in working with entrepreneurs and leaders to help them explore potential, possibilities, and ways to be more effective. And the best bit? We can start right now. Tell me, have you seen the animated movie Up? Do you remember the very sweet, goofy, and distractible dog called Doug? Remember how he'd be midway through a sentence and get distracted and shout, Squirrel! Well, if you've ever felt like Doug, then I'm 100% with you. I feel your distracted pain. I do this to myself all the time. Halfway through a sentence, my squirrel radar kicks in and it's just ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. It amuses people and it frustrates them in equal measure, I think, because it looks like I'm not focused on what's going on. But it's not really that simple. So when we have those squirrel moments, one of the things we need to ask ourselves is, what was the original function of this? We need to think about how our brains evolved to help us survive. We need to look at what we're asking them to do now and how we're asking them to repurpose these amazingly complex, tried and tested ways of surviving in a modern world for which they really haven't had the time to evolve. So just as an aside here, I know the focus can be an issue for people with neurodiverse brains, but For today's purposes, I'm just talking about the commoner garden brain, should such a thing actually exist. One of the things that we do need to appreciate is that we've got a lot going on in our brains. As well as two hemispheres that see the world very differently, we have these networks in our brain called the default mode network and the task positive network. And there are a lot more players in there that impact our experience of the world. But, you know, we'll try and keep it simple because otherwise we'll just get distracted, won't we? And part of how we survived is that our brains can scan the environment for threats and opportunities, even when we're doing something else. So it's a little bit like peripheral vision, I guess. Your brain is watching all of the things that are going on all around you and noticing stuff, even if that's not at a conscious level. And if one of those things is unusual enough or attractive enough or scary enough, then you'll respond to it, much like a dog seeing a squirrel. So... For me recently, what happened was that I was in the middle of a conversation with some people and in the next room, their children were watching television and out of the corner of my eye, mid-sentence, I noticed something on the television, at which point I interrupted my own sentence and said, is that Sting? Which was really very like the human equivalent of going squirrel. Embarrassing and it's funny and it's all of the things at the same time because I genuinely do come across sometimes like a total idiot because it looks like I can't focus. And depending on how much squirrel is going on in that periphery, I've had to develop strategies to retrace my steps because generally speaking, the train of thought has left the station and I've got to work out at what stop I got off. Fortunately, people do tend to be very patient with this. I guess, you know, they understand that it's involuntary and sometimes it yields certain unexpected results, ideas even. And I'll give another example of this shortly. So understanding what's going on and why it's happening means that I can recognize that it's not exactly that I'm the village idiot, but my brain is working on two levels at the same time. So I'm not as hard on myself as I used to be. And I know that this is part of my intuitive brain and a part that can yield great insight, which is sometimes insight the focused brain can't see. 
So here's that second example, and it's one that Gary Klein refers to in his book, Seeing What Others Don't. In it, he tells the story of two police officers in their patrol car when the younger one admires the brand new BMW alongside them. Then he notices the driver flicking ash in the car and immediately his spidey senses shout squirrel. This is something worth noticing. That's the thing. This part of our brain notices and processes information in a really fast and often non-linear way. But he knew as soon as he saw that, that something was wrong. The owner of that new car would never do that. The car had to be stolen. And he was right. It was. There are many other examples in this great book, by the way. And I'll actually just take a moment here to let you know that if you want to join me and my colleagues at the Neurodevelopment Institute to discuss this book through an applied neuroscience lens, then go to neurodevelopmentinstitute.com forward slash read. I'll put that in the notes, so don't worry about the squirrel factor here. So I'm going to go back through my is that sting moment here. And this time we're looking at what it was about that that made this worthy of notice. I'll just say that I'm ambivalent at best about Sting. He's not like my favourite artist or anything. So why did my squirrel radar kick in? Well, what was an ageing rock star doing on kids' TV? These were pretty young kids and their parents were naturally careful about what they watched. So I was expecting to see CBBS or Peppa Pig or Storytime out of the corner of my eye. I was not expecting to see Sting. This was... I guess, a potential alert situation. Had they actually found their way onto a channel that their parents wouldn't approve of? Possibly. This is why I noticed something was happening that shouldn't be happening. So the squirrel radar, it's a bit like a coked up version of a great detective sometimes. You know, Hercule Poirot, he uh, he said, I notice all the things that should not be. And that's kind of what the squirrel is doing or the squirrel radar is doing. And generally speaking, Sting is not someone you expect to see in that context, right? Well, that's my story and I'm sticking squirrel. (laughs) I'm kidding. We've got to laugh at ourselves though, right? Can't take this too seriously. But we should take it a bit seriously. Seriously enough to want to understand it and to benefit from it rather than trying to eradicate it. And in order to do that, we need to start looking at how to work with it so that we get the benefit of those random peripheral insights, as well as being able to stay on track with the train of thought. So how do we retain focus, I guess, is the next question. How do we stop the squirrels and the stings? So I suppose one of the obvious things to do is to make sure that we're doing something that we are actually interested in, because it's a whole lot harder to get distracted when you're interested. I remember, you know, back in the day when I was working in consultancy and stuff, I was so bored mostly in meetings that I was always chasing ideas, which I got away with because, you know, I'm the creative one. But at the same time, I did wish that I was able to focus and be more, I guess, in line with the discussion rather than, uh, I don't know, bringing random things to it. It would be nice sometimes to feel a bit more structured and directional. So let's talk a bit more about the brain for a minute. Now, you'll have to bear with me because this is not a checklist. This is more building of a picture. So let's start with the right hemisphere. Now, the right hemisphere is really good at a number of things, including seeing the big picture. And in looking at the wider environment, it also can scan for upcoming threats and opportunities. So if you imagine, say, a gazelle or something on the Serengeti and this beautiful gazelle is grazing away, but its ears are twitching and moving constantly, delivering signals to its brain. And at the slightest hint of, you know, a noise or an unexpected threat, that gazelle switches modes and, you know, gone like a shot, doesn't hesitate, it just moves. 
So on the left and right hemispheres, they do different things, but they largely operate on a divide and conquer basis to accomplish them. The right hemisphere looks at the big picture and the left hemisphere takes in the nitty gritty, the detail, and it can make structured plans to accomplish an end. So let's go back to the Serengeti. Now imagine you've got a lioness stalking that gazelle and that lioness is on point. The lioness is more like someone using the task positive network, I guess, because she is stalking that gazelle. Her focus doesn't break. She is moving one step at a time towards this goal of a tasty gazelle dinner. When she's focused on that, she isn't distracted by anything else going on around her. Now, I guess it helps that the lioness is probably top of the food chain and she's not really worried about too many things coming to attack her. And just to give you a bit more of the picture, the other network in the brain is the default mode network. And it's so-called because it's sort of our resting state, our idle state of the brain, if you like. And I use those words pretty loosely because obviously your brain is always doing stuff. It's it's never idle, even when you're asleep beyond us. Um, so we, for instance, might be now, generally speaking, while the right and left hemispheres tend to work to their strengths and give us an optimum intake of information and output of action, the two networks, the default mode network and the task positive network, they don't operate at the same time. Now, that's not an absolute, by the way. It's, a, it's more of a generalization. But for the sake of this conversation, if you have your task positive network running, then your default mode network is not going to be in operation. The two networks in the brain operate in tension with each other. So this means that the brain regions responsible for analytic thinking exist in tension with the brain regions is essential for social and emotional connecting with others. Now, the task positive network is going to offer you a suite of thinking skills and ways of seeing things that are quite analytical and possibly a little more detached. So it allows us to do things like make hard decisions, to recognize that we need to have difficult conversations that people might not even like to hear, for instance. So you can think of it as being a bit more about function, whereas the default mode network tends to be more empathetic and seeing people as individuals and recognizing their humanity rather than thinking of them as cogs in a wheel. So the default mode network is much less concerned with the functionality of people and things and situations and much more about connection and empathy and more likely to see those people as individuals, not numbers or statistics. There are some terms that can help us understand the difference between the default mode network and the task positive network. And these come from coaching techniques. We talk about coaching for compassion or with compassion, and that's much more aligned to the default mode network. And then there's coaching for compliance, which is much more aligned with the task positive network. Now, here's something interesting. I was reading some work by Richard Boyatzis and his colleagues, and he's talking about the default mode network and the task positive network. And what he says is that these two things both benefit us. But one of the points he made is that the key point is about fear and anxiety. They act like stimulants and they can achieve a great short term boost. But over the longer term, they decrease overall performance. This is evident when we use bad consequence as a motivator. So fear and anxiety, that can be a shortcut to boosted performance. For instance, our gazelle back in the Serengeti, she heard the noise, she took the action. The action she took was getting away. It's fight or flight, and her choice was flight because she can't fight off that lioness. Now, that's a good use of the fear of consequence boost, right? But performing under that kind of pressure constantly has an impact on our whole system, and it isn't good for us. 
Now, another interesting thing that Boyatzis points out in this piece of research is that the default mode network and the task positive network take up roughly equal space on the surface of our brains, on, on the surface of the cortex. However, we're trained far more in the use of and the enhancement of the task positive in school, for instance, in terms of analytical uh, thinking, in terms of logical thinking and so on. So the question that came up for me as I was reading this is, why is this the case? Why are we so focused on developing and enhancing logic and analytical skills when, in fact, our brains are so much more evenly divided between the two skill sets? And this is a question I think that we need to ask ourselves in all kinds of contexts, educational, professional and domestic. But getting back to where we started, how do we stop being so distracted? You know, whether that's the random ideas, the shiny object syndrome, scrolling on social media or something caught out of the corner of your eye. Well, we actually don't necessarily need to eradicate this. It's my belief and my experience that we need to create understanding and a more compassionate view of this function of the brain. And we need to find motivation. That gazelle was pretty intent on her grazing, despite the constant scanning, right? And the lioness was clearly motivated by her tasty gazelle dinner. Squirrel radar is clearly different to social media rabbit holes. And I've realized that there's a whole lot of wildlife in the episode today, but um, bear with me. What we do need to recognize is that if we want to change something, we actually need to tap into that default mode network. We can't scold ourselves into not getting distracted because the research shows that we are far more likely to be able to motivate ourselves into change in the long term if we are experiencing what they call a positive emotional attractor. I guess the common way of saying this is that you'll catch more flies with honey than with, with vinegar or a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Phrases like that really reflect this very well. Basically, what we're talking about here is the fact that we can motivate ourselves with fear and undesirable consequences. We can motivate others the same way, but effectively, these are short term options. They are not sustainable strategies. So. In short, for someone to want to do something, it has to be something that they want to do. I mean, we're stating the bleeding obvious here, right? And one of the questions we might be tempted to ask when we have these squirrel moments is, who is that? Who is this extra person in my head who keeps interrupting me? What is that part of my brain? How can I be having a conversation with someone, you know, where I am actually involved in the conversation and giving them my attention? And suddenly the golden retriever of life bounds off to chase squirrels or sting or some other random thing. Well, we have to recognize that we're both. We have within us this focus and this distraction. And we've been trained more in using one and we've been rewarded more for using one. But that doesn't mean the other isn't there. It isn't operating. And crucially, it isn't trying to do its job. We have to remember this, that it is trying to do something for us. And this is, again, I think a really important concept in coming to terms with what it is to have a human brain. Because we're not one of those networks or the other. We're not one of those hemispheres or the other. We're both. It's not this or that. It's this and that. And recognizing this and being aware of this and being able to work with this, being able to work through it and being able to enhance the skills and capabilities and the contributions of each of these networks. That's really where we need to be going. We're not going to be able to eliminate these tendencies, nor should we want to, because they serve a function. However, managing your squirrel response, that's that's something different, isn't it? Of course, the ideal is that we can actually tap into both as we need them and that we can recognize when to move between the two. 
And that's what they say, you know, about good leaders and good managers and so on, that they are able to fluidly move between these two networks so that when they've got something that requires a task positive focus, they're able to be in that way of thinking. And then they're able to switch back to the default mode network when that's appropriate. So we can use applied neuroscience to train that ability in ourselves. We can ask from a creative perspective, what is it that your squirrel radar brain can actually bring you? What is it that, you know, if you were compassionately coaching yourself, would you recognize in the squirrel or the tendency? Or what would you recognize in the lioness or the gazelle? And how would you use all of these factors of your brain to help move you in the direction that you want to go? So thanks for joining me today and thanks for um, coming on my tour of the great squirrels we have known and loved. And if you want to find more squirrels, uh, find less squirrels or generally have an interesting conversation, then definitely look up neurodevelopmentinstitute.com and check out our discussion groups that are coming up later in the year. And I hope we'll see you there. You're still here? Great. Look, I know there's a lot to choose from out there, so thanks for flying with Ambition Incubator Airlines, and I look forward to seeing you on board again soon. Seriously, though, thank you for tuning in. My guests and I love hearing about what inspires you on the show and what advice has made a difference in your life or work and what you'd like more of. So get in touch. If you want to know about my other work, head over to ambitionincubator.com for details. And don't forget to hit subscribe for more great interviews, advice, and bite-sized brain science every week.